good to be gathered together on Sunday morning. Let's listen to the reading of God's Word. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 4, we'll be reading chapters 4 and chapter 5 today of Job. If you don't have your own Bible, our ushers do have Bibles available. Raise your hand if you would like them to bring you a Bible. Job chapter 4 and 5. Let's read together. So let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. And I ask you to just follow along with me as I read. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence? and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust. In his angels he charges with air. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are bitten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root. But suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. There is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns. The thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his, his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death, and in war, from the power of the sword. 
You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh and shall not fear the beast of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field and the beast of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants at the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. That is the word of God, a remarkable passage that's set our hearts to understand and to follow what God teaches us uh, to heed from this passage. Let's bow now in a word of prayer. Father, we pray uh, and thank you, first of all, for allowing us to be here today. Thanking you, Lord, for opening our eyes to allow us to see the significance of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and allowing us to believe and trust in him and have a hope of eternal life through Jesus. So we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would open our hearts that we might receive it. Bless me as I preach your word. Give me um, understanding, wisdom, discernment, and clarity of speech to communicate your truth in a way that's pleasing to you and a way that challenges and motivates your people as you would want them to be motivated and challenged. And Lord, that you might um, just work through your word today. We even pray for those who couldn't be with us here in presence, but will come to hear your word over the internet or, uh, and uh, rejoice as they hear your word uh, being taught. May they benefit from your truth being taught in that way. We pray for the sick, Lord, those who, um, especially those who are not with us today. There's so many, Lord, that are being added to our list. We just continue to ask you to heal, to uphold, to, um, to work in their lives, to uh, and encourage their spirit so that they don't get discouraged in, in the challenge that they face physically. We thank you for those who are here uh, amongst us, Lord, and, and uh, even who suffer. So, Lord, we just pray that you would watch over each one of your people and that you would bless and that you would heal and you would work in their lives. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. It is amazing the depth of emotion that we experience in our Christian walk as I was hearing uh, Aaron and his beautiful expression and singing that song. I was thinking how, how what the range is for, for our emotion and how we feel free when we have been turned, um, when we have been forgiven of our sin and that's been expressed to us. But then I couldn't help but imagine in our series that we're looking at, Joe probably felt the exact opposite of that. The end of chapter 3, he, he says, the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, he says. I have no rest. There are sometimes in our experience, our experience doesn't match what we really have. Because what we go through, we go through the ups and downs of life. And Job is in one of those valleys in his life. You may feel like that sometimes. You may feel like that recently. You may feel like that right now. But you to realize you're just in chapter 3. You're just in chapter 3. You're going through it. And it's not going to stay like that all the time. So endure. So Job could express this. But even in this, he does have hope. And so we're encouraged by it. I didn't know exactly how to preach through this series. And I often wonder from chapter 4 all the way through, you know, how do you deal with that? And it made me wonder, why does God include that in his word? 
For one thing, I'm overwhelmed with the powerful poetry of the Word of God. Have you ever thought about that? The Word of God is an exceptional book because it is God's Word, but it's exceptional also because it's exceptional literature. It is, it's the greatest literature in the world. So if you want to read history, you've got that in the Word of God. If you want to read literature and, 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 and poetry, it's a beautiful expression. I've often said that the Psalms helps us in our expression of some of the agonies of life and some of the challenges that we face, and Job does that too. And so we have just a powerful poetic um, expression here. Now, what we get to in chapter 4 and 5 today is the response, the first response of Job's friend. We know that they came to comfort him. They sat with him for a full week without saying a word because he was so overburdened with his sorrow. And now is a time to speak, and Eliphaz is the first one to come and to speak. And so we're going to look at his words. Now, we put chapters 4 and 5 together because, you know, some people are long-winded, and Eliphaz was, was speaking for two chapters. So uh, we're going to put that together. You know, y'all you, know you're saying, yeah, how many chapters would I have? Uh, you can judge that. I can ask you, too, how many chapters would you have? Um, but the, 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 the friends began to speak, and so we want to take a look. We're going to group that together. I know it's a lot of verses to get through, but I think we can, we can do that. So let's get right into it. Eliphaz speaks. Um, he starts off um, by saying, you know, basically he couldn't wait to say something, and now his time has come, and so he speaks. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says to Job, you have instructed many. You have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling. You have made firm the feeble knees. And what I notice in that, there is a you have done this, but then in verse 5 it gets to that contract, uh, 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 that, that um, um, the but now, the contraction. Uh, you have done, done this, but now. And the emphasis there is, Job, you've been teaching, you've been speaking, you've been saying to others, but now some things are starting to happen to you. In James chapter 3, James warns us about not all desiring and not many of us desiring to be teachers because we have a greater responsibility. And what is this point is that when we have taught others, we have a responsibility to make, give integrity to our teaching by our lives. So it's easy to say one thing. It's another thing now to live it. And that's what Eliphaz is pointing out. And it's a true statement, isn't it? James points that out in the New Testament. Don't, don't be so quick to say something if you don't show it in your own life. You have no integrity to speak it. Now, yeah, you should be able to speak it because you should be living it in your own life. And so he's challenging Job here. You've, you've spoken. And now, look at the but now in verse 5. But now it has come to you. It touches you. And you are dismayed. It's easy for us to advise others. But we need to remember that the best advice is our own lives. What example are we setting? We should, we should teach first with an example. And that, that, you know, I say that to you, but I have to speak it to myself because I have the awesome responsibility of teaching God's word. And God doesn't give me the option on Sunday morning, do you want to speak today? <laughs> you, 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 you need to follow that responsibility. But what he says, what's even more important than faithfully communicating in a verbal sense what God has to say is communicating that faithfully in our lives. And what we need to know from that is that God will actually Use your life more than he will your mere words. Words are important, but they need to be backed up by life. So how are you helping others? How are you teaching others? How are you leading others? Consider that. So Eliphaz has a 
an important um, challenge to, to each of us in, in that way. Now he gets to his main point in verse 7. And um, I'm going to cover, I've broken down his whole um, conversation to two main points. And then we'll look at the supporting uh, text that statements that he makes for those points. His first main point um, is in verse 7. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? That's his main point, his first main point. Do the innocent suffer? And he's saying, no. He's saying, those who suffer are suffering for their wrong that's been done. He says, where were the upright cut off? So he makes a point, and if you follow with me today, let, let's just put ourselves in the place of Eliphaz and let's walk through his points and consider ourselves before making this argument to a person or a friend. And so Eliphaz makes a big, bold, and strong point. He's saying suffering is a result of wrongdoing, and it's a personal wrongdoing. And you know, that's a hard point to argue. Because all of us have suffered in some way from our own wrongdoing. We can't deny that. You ever been a kid and your mom or your dad told you not to do something and you did it and you wished you hadn't done it and you knew they told you not to? You, you, even as an adult, we do things and we go, oh man, I could just kick myself. I wish I could go back and reverse that. We realize that. And in fact, we learn lessons that way because we actually suffer from our mistakes and our wrongdoings. So Eliphaz makes a, a basically a universal point that's universally true. We all suffer because we've done wrong. It's a point that the Word of God makes. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We understand that. We see it every day. He says, to back up that point, here's the supporting statements, verse 8. You reap what you sow. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. That's a point that's made throughout Scripture. What, it, it's, 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 a, it's a fundamental life principle. You, you plant something and you get what you've planted. What is produced is, is tied to what is planted. You plant an apple seed, you expect to see an apple tree. You reap what you sow. We've seen that in the New Testament verified and, 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 and stated, restated. It, it's a true statement. He says in verse 9, God judges by the breath of God. They perish. In other words, God acts out his judgment against the wrongdoer. In verse 10, he makes the point that God brings down the great. The great ones don't get away with doing wrong. God will judge them. He, he, he uses the roar of the lion, the fierce lion, the teeth of young lions. What? Are broken. In other words, God will deal with even the strongest ones who do, who do wrong. Let's get to verses 12 through 17. Can't wait for that part. I mean, that's an amazing section. Look at it. So, first of all, he makes his main point. When was the innocent ever, ever uh, uh, suffered? When were the upright cut off? And he gives his supporting statements. And then to back up his statement, he says this. And let me just summarize verses 12 through 17. I've got divine insight. 
That's what he says, verse 12 through 17. I've got divine insight. Because he says, now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night and when deep sleep falls on man. He says, you know what? I heard a, he says, I'm getting special revelation from God. Now, when we hear that, automatically, you know, um, a warning light kind of goes off in our head, like, really? Really? Eliphaz is coming to prove his point that he has revelation from God. When somebody says that, the first thing I want to know is, how can I challenge that? Yeah, Pastor, I was, you know, um, God told me last night. Really? You're going to go there. So I've got superior knowledge is what he's saying. You can't say I'm wrong because what I said comes straight from God. Now, we know how to challenge that now. We, need, we, we, we can just say, okay, show me. No, I ain't talking about that specific revelation. I'm talking about some special revelation that I got. All right? Let's see if it fits here. Let's see if it coincides with what this says. And by the way, not only should it coincide, it should be appropriate for the setting. And we're going to see what, why, why, why that's important. Is it in context? Is it appropriate for the situation there? Don't just pick a verse and, and say, God told me that, if it doesn't even uh, uh, um, stand in its context to, to support what you're trying to say. So he says, my ear received the whisper of it. Whisper kind of hints of a secret, right? He's hearing something that nobody else hears. He's getting information that nobody else is privy to. Look what he says, verse 12, 13. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on man, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. He said, man, I'm telling you something serious. This was powerful. I was moved by this. I was scared to death. A spirit glided past my face. Brother, if you was there, you could feel it. It was so powerful. I could smell the breath of God. How do you challenge something like that? You can't. But that's what he's saying. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice. You know, you, 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 what you going to say? What'd he say? What'd he say? What'd he say? That's what he wants you to say. He got you. He got you. He said, I got a special revelation from God last night while I was dreaming. A spirit came in my bed, moved past my face, and spoke to me. Look, I don't care how emotional you get. You can't back up your argument with nonsense. And it's very dangerous to use that approach to, to pull rank. Isn't Eliphaz saying, listen to me, Job? I'm speaking from God. Now, see, we have, we, we, we have the benefit of, of all the book of Job. And, and God says to, to, to Job's friends later, look, I rebuke you for what you said. But he says this, and here's what he says. This is his second point, his second main point, verse 17. Can mortal man be in the right before God? That's the voice that spoke to him and said this. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Guess what? He's right. It's true. The statement is a powerful statement. It's a true statement. Who can stand before Almighty God and say, God, judge me. I am clear of any wrong. 
Nobody can do that. And Eliphaz knew that. Now, he didn't have to come up with this support of, I've got special revelation from God to, 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 to make this statement. Because the statement is clear, and we understand that. Mortal man can't stand before God, but that's not really the issue here. And that's the problem with what he's saying. What I, what remind, as I go through these, these, these two chapters, I'm reminded of a tendency I might have or anyone who preaches God's word or teaches God's word might have, and that is to try to put more force behind their words so that people would, would buy their argument instead of letting God speak for himself. My job is simply to remind you of God's truth. Now, I am to do it persuasively. And I can use the power of language and the power of speaking to do that. But that's where we have to be very careful, that we're not caught up. In fact, we, 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 we term guys charismatic, that, that they have a very powerful personality. And they are, uh, for us, we're quick to believe them because they have a, they're motivators, they're persuaders, and they have a powerful uh, use of word and personality to draw you into what it is they're saying. In fact, that, that's good. That's a God-given gift. The challenge is use it properly and use it in a godly way. And in fact, all through here, we're cautioned on how we ought to use that and how we ought to, to um, um, minister to each other in right ways. Eliphaz is, in fact, trying to minister to his friend Job. So don't try to pull rank to minister to them. Simply speak God's truth and apply it rightly. Let God do the work. And I say that as a warning to myself because there's oftentimes I, I want people to be convinced. I want them to jump up and down and, and grab onto truth right away. Um, and, and I don't see them doing that as fast as I'd like that to happen. And, and, and I'd like to have something to tug with, something to pull with, something to, to draw them on. But um, that drawing and tugging is the Holy Spirit. He'll do that. He will speak through his word. We need to be convinced of that. It's not the power of my personality, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit that does the work. If you're going to speak, if you're going to teach, if you're going to influence others, if you're going to interact with a friend, and we all do that, regardless of what category we're in or what title we have, we interact with others, and we do that in, 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 in some sense to to persuade them, to challenge them, to move them, to speak to them, to convince them. Let it be the Lord doing that through you instead of you using the Lord as your hammer to do something that you want them to do. So Eliphaz does this. But what he says is powerful and it's true. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He makes the point that even God's servants, the angels, God has found in error. And that's true. Angels are judged. Satan himself and his whole uh, one-third of the host of heaven have been judged by God, and they were the highest of beings. So he says, who is man in regard to them? And how can man possibly stand before God justified. We can't. We can't. Does that not point right to the Lord Jesus Christ? We ask, how do we see Christ in Job? And how do we not, uh, uh, how, how, how does, if Job is a part of the Word of God, how does it even picture Jesus? It, it pictures right there. Who is our justification? Can Job stand, can any of us stand on our own character and be totally justified no. Job was a unique person. The Bible says in, in, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, and Job chapter 2, verse 3, a comment from God himself, or a comment of the scripture here, is that Job was an up, upright man. 
godly. He, he, he lived a good and holy and right life. We didn't see any flaws in his character, and yet we know he was a man. And we know that he had some faults. But even him, even the, uh, the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14 and verse 20, talk about uh, God bringing judgment on, on, on his people. And he says, that even if Noah and, 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 and Daniel and Job were to stand before God for the sake of these people, they would only save themselves because of their righteousness and the people would still be in trouble. And he, he points out three righteous men, and Job is one of them. That's a remarkable threesome to be a part of, isn't it? <laughs> so Job was a unique person, but even him, he could not. He would fall short as a human being. Let's go on. Getting down now to... Chapter 5. I'm reminded in chapter 5, it's, it's kind of what we do in an argument. You know how you get on a roll? You make a point, and a person doesn't challenge that point, and you're like, I got him now. He doubles down on his point is what he does in chapter 5. Eliphaz says, I got you, Job. I made a strong point. You got no argument for that, so let me just drive it home. And so that's what he does. In chapter 5, he likens Job to a fool who flourishes for a brief moment and then is cut down. Verse 2 of chapter 5, surely vexation kills the fool, jealousy slays the simple. I've seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I've cursed his dwelling. This reminds me of a preacher on a road. We get in the spirit, so to speak. Get in that moment, and, and he's got his persuasive argument going, and, and he's just on high. And what he says is, has truth in it, but the question that has to be asked is, is it appropriate towards Job? So he says, I've seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. He says, it's, it's not unlike a foolish person to have success or to get started well, but at the end, everything collapses on them. Remember the story Jesus told, I think it's Matthew 7, he talks about the, the, the wise and the foolish who built their, their house the foolish built it on sand. The, the, the wise built it on a rock. Now, they all built a house, and it was a great house, but because it was only built on sand, it was a great fall. So it's a picture of a man who gets started. He has something built up. It looks fantastic. It looks good. But over time, and usually it was considered a short period of time, boom, it all comes collapsing down. Eliphaz is saying to Job, you like that, man. You've been built up, but now you've been broken down. And that's evidence that someone built with integrity there. He says in verse 4, this collapse includes your household. Your children are destroyed. Your material possessions in verse 5 are destroyed. Everything is gone. Verse 6, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor troubles, does trouble spout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. That is so true, isn't it? Trouble just seems to find us. <laughs> Sometimes we feel like that. I was just going smoothly through life, and then boom, it hit me. And here we go. The life experience, we experience those kinds of things in life. We experience challenges and difficulties. And the question really is, is why is Job experiencing this? And he doesn't know. He, he doesn't know what's happened in the two meetings in heaven. All he knows is his servants has come back to him and given him a report of everything that he has owned. Everything he possessed is now gone. 
after analyzing this, Eliphaz says, you know, I think it's because of this. And he says to Job, here's what I would do, verse 8. As for me, I would seek God. How can that be bad counsel? It's not. As for me, I would seek God. Verse 8, he says, to, to, to God would I commit my cause. And then he goes on about God. He says, God does great things and unsearchable things. He gives rain on the earth. He exalts the lowly in verse 11. And in verse 15 and 16, he gets back to that point. He saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. God is the one who looks out for the lowly, he says. And God squashes, he, he brings down those who get too high, who think too much of themselves. He frustrates, verse 12 through 14, the devices of the crafty. Verse 17 through 26, can we look at this section now? Here he's saying, those who God disciplines and reproves are blessed. And that's a true statement as well. Verse 17, behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Now, we've seen that in Scripture before, haven't we? We've seen it in Proverbs. We've seen it in the New Testament as well. Is it in Peter? I think so. He talks about those who God reproves. Don't, don't, don't run away from the correction of God. And so this is correct, it's truthful, but does it apply to Job? He says, the ones that God discipline and reproves are blessed. He says, he wounds them, but he binds them up in verse 18. Verse 19, God delivers them. Verse 20, he redeems them from death. Verse 21 through 26, he said he protects them from harm and destruction. I can't help but to think of much of the preaching that goes on today. I kind of put it in the category of prosperity uh, preaching. Basically saying, look, when you walk in obedience to God, your path prospers. Well, that's only half true. That's the problem I have with that. It ignores the fact that you could be walking in God's path like Job did and suffer as a result of righteousness. So let, let's take a look at, at, at the statements that he makes here in, 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 in this section. He says, verse 18, God wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He delivers you from six troubles and seven, no evil shall touch you. Now, all of us will say amen to that. God preaching out from the pulpit, we'd be jumping up and down. Praise God. That's so encouraging. And it is, and it's true. But it's only a portion. There's another side to that that needs to be considered. Verse 20, in famine he would redeem you from death, in war from the power of the sword. Verse 21, you shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. 22, at destruction and famine you shall laugh. Ha ha, right? And shall not fear the beast of the earth. You shall be in the league with the stones of the field. And the beast of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace. And you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. He says, look, your home and all the possessions that you have will be secure. That's nice to hear. That's comforting. If it's true. If it's applied correctly. So what makes this wrong counsel? Though these statements contain truth, they miss the point in Job's life and experience. Why? First of all, the premise is incorrect. 
The premise is this. God does not allow the godly to suffer. That's the premise of Eliphaz's statement. God does not allow his to suffer. And that must need to be challenged first and foremost. It is not true. Let's go right to the beginning of Scripture. Who is the first human being to experience suffering and death? No, it's Abel. Cain was wicked. Abel was righteous. It is the righteous that suffered first. He suffered not for his wrongdoing. He suffered for doing what is right, what is good, what God required, and he got put to death by his own brother as a result of that. So at the very beginning of history of mankind, you can say this statement that God does not allow righteous to suffer is wrong. It's a poor, incomplete statement, and the perfect picture of that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Who is more righteous than Jesus and who suffered more than him? I was listening to a documentary this week, and it was talking about crucifixion and how it is by far the most painful means of death that man could come up with. It was meant for torture and death. Not just death, but torture and death. You know, in our day and age, we, we debate whether there should even be a death penalty. And when there is one acted out, it is done in such a way that it Death comes very quickly, and it doesn't even match the pain and the suffering that that person brought on their own victim. And we would think in our society today that we don't need to do that, that that's, that's just barbaric, that's going too far, and so forth. And I'm not here to argue that point today, but I, hear, I am here to tell you that Jesus suffered in the most severe, drastic way that any could suffer, and he was by far, without question, without an innocent, the most innocent, the most righteous man ever to live and therefore the most righteous one ever suffered the most excruciating suffering and torment that he could. There's none to match when it comes to Jesus and this is all part of God's plan. So to say that the righteous do not suffer as a part of God's divine plan is to miss the point of what God is actually doing. So Eliphaz's counsel breaks down at that point. Secondly, and I think here's what we can learn. So the first picture of what we learn helps point us to Jesus. Job is, in fact, a picture of Jesus. Now, we need to say this. When we talk about pictures of Jesus, a picture draws similarities, but it's not exact. We take a picture of somebody that we have you know, on our phone, and we say, hey, this is my dad. What you mean is this is a representation of my dad. My dad is there at home. But this is what he looks like. This is similar to him. And so we need to realize that when we say a picture or Job is like or a picture of Jesus, it's not a perfect picture. It doesn't have to be a perfect picture. But it's to point us to him. So Job is not perfect, he's not sinless, but he's a picture of the righteous one suffering as a result of, of, the, of, of a meeting in heaven. Jesus is that perfect picture. That's what we're to get from Job's life. Secondly, there's some very practical things that we ought to get from, from this, and let's, let's talk a little bit about that. <clears throat> when you and I go through trials, we ought to do something because we're not Job. <laughs> I'm not Job. You're not Job. I'm nowhere close to Job, and guess what? Neither are you. 
which means that when you and I go through a trial, we should first very closely examine our own fault and our own sin and see if there's something that we need to repent from, turn from, or acknowledge before God. It may not be that God is, 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 is punishing us for that, but it's something that has brought, brought us to the circumstances that we are in that God wants us to see, to learn from, and to turn from. There may indeed be something there that God wants us to look at. Get what I'm saying? We can't ignore that. We can't just put on our righteous robe and say, I'm Job and I'm being persecuted even though I have absolutely no fault. You and I would be foolish to make that statement. We need to examine ourselves first of all and see if, in fact, what we're going through is something that we ought to look at very closely. Maybe we need some other eyes to help us see that as well. Job even brought friends to help see himself, and, and uh, we may need some friends to, to, to look at. So I, I think we, we need to do, to do that. <clears throat> If we're the friend of someone, and all of us are friends in some way to someone who is suffering, and we offer advice, even if we don't think we're offering advice, we make comments, we respond to their circumstances, we would try to help them out in their situation, we need to consider several things. Our advice and our counsel needs to be appropriate for the situation that we're talking to. I admired Job's friends when they sat and just sat with Job in silence for a week. Proverbs tells us you can't answer something that you know nothing about. You need to first listen. You're going to be a counsel, a counsel to someone or a counselor um, one of the first things we need to do is to learn how to listen. We need to practice that. That's a very important skill. We need to find out what's going on in this individual's life. As a pastor, I've had people who wanted me to counsel them or, in fact, came to me for counsel but didn't actually want me to counsel them. You know how I know? They won't tell me what's going on. Even when I ask, they, 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 they stir away and around the real thing that's going on. And I, I can't counsel if I don't know what's going on. My counsel would not be appropriate if I don't understand your situation. And so if I ask a question and you don't want to answer it, then I, I don't have a lot I can say that will be helpful there when I can't dig down deep and find out what's going on. A lot of people want general counsel. But counsel needs to be specific, doesn't it? If you're going to counsel Job, you need to kind of understand what's going on. It may be, in fact, that none of us can actually understand to that degree. But the application in Eliphaz's point was way too broad. The statements he says are generally true, but simply don't apply for Job. How about bringing them down to more specifics in Job's life. Conviction needs to be specific. One of the statements I wrote here in my, <laughs> in my outline, conviction needs to be specific. Sometimes people ask me a question so that they can escape conviction simply because I don't know all the facts or all the details. Because they understand conviction needs to be specific. They, they, they know that before you can really speak as to what's wrong being done, you, you, you got to break it down. you got to understand what's been done and what's been said. And so they leave some of that information out so that you can't do that. They can say, you know, we have to caution ourselves to, be, to, to not put ourselves in the category of Job and say, hey, that, that doesn't fit me because of this. That doesn't fit me because of, of this situation here. As we treat ourselves as the exception to, to, to every rule, so to speak. 
One thing I do know, I don't have the wisdom to counsel everyone. I don't have the wisdom to bring out everything, but no individual, no human being can do that, but God does. And he knows how to do that. We dare not escape what he has to say. See, we can't say like Job that we stand in the right because Eliphaz hasn't put his finger on our wrong. You ever listen to commercials? I listen to some of the lawyer commercials. They say you, you, you're not guilty <laughs> until you're proven wrong. That's just not true. You can be guilty just not proven wrong. You can be dead wrong and just not have the evidence that other people can get at to show that that's the fact. But it's a fact. It's still true. We just don't have the evidence to prove it. And that's where human reasoning and human uh, 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 interaction fail, but God does not. God does not. We can't escape the eye of God. We cannot escape what he knows and what he sees. In fact, I want to look at just a, a couple different verses. And one is in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. He kind of sums up the whole book of Ecclesiastes. He says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. But this is the whole duty of man. And then he says this, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God doesn't apply just some general judgment or condemnation or conviction on a person. You know, some people leave church and say, well, you know, pastor wasn't talking about me because he didn't mention this and this and this and this and this. <laughs> At the same time, I'm amazed when I've heard several individuals say, well, pastor, after, I, after the message I talked to you, you, you seemed like you knew what was going on in my life. I have to confess I don't, but God does, and he's able to use his truth to, to bear down in your soul and to bring conviction. But well, here's what he does. He says, I'm going to judge individuals. What does he say here in Ecclesiastes? God will bring every deed into judgment. So God, unlike Eliphaz or like you and I, when we look at someone else, God knows all the details and has a record of that and will, in fact, judge based on that. So though we can hide that from a counselor, we can hide that from a pastor, we can hide that from a friend who doesn't know all the details of our situation, we can appear to be in the right to them. When we stand before God, all that will be stripped and God will judge us by our actions. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, he says, equivalent of that again, I want to look at that. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Each one receive what is due, what is proper for what he has done. So our own individual actions that God will bring before us and make that judgment. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but I've been in that situation before where somebody makes an accusation against you, and you know they weren't there, so they didn't see it, and you're hoping that they don't really have any more evidence, but you know the evidence they got is not specific enough, and you're saying in your mind, you ain't got me. You ain't got me. You can't prove that I did this. And you know, because you're smart, you got a good case. You know you got a good case. So you stand strong on that case. You even become arrogant in it. Well, prove that I did that. Because you know they can't. They weren't there. 
Well, now we live in a different world. We have cameras all over everywhere, and they may, in fact, prove and show you the camera and show you the video. But that's what God is saying. I got the, I got the video. You can stand because you think nobody else saw it and be arrogant in your comment. And nobody on earth may be, may be able to say anything against that. But that's not who judges you. You will stand before God. So the, the caution here is don't be concerned in the argument, the tit for tat. You don't know what I really did when we argue back and forth. Be concerned what God does know and what he sees in his evidence. He says he'll judge each one accordingly, according to their own deeds. In Revelation chapter um, 20, he also brings that point out. Let's just look there very briefly. Revelations 20. Verse 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. That's the evidence. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books. Look at this. According to what they had done, God is going to judge every individual according to his book, his record of what they have done. So the caution is, let us not stand as if we're Job and can stand on our own righteousness before God. Let's humble ourselves before him and recognize that. The other side of the caution is this. Let's be careful as we judge each other that we judge appropriately and be willing to say when we don't have the evidence, God knows. And I'm content to let him do that and let him judge the matter. I might not have strong enough evidence to condemn you. And therefore, I won't without that evidence. But you need to know God sees and God knows. Don't turn away from Eliphaz, who doesn't know specifics, and have to face God, who knows them. And you have no argument with him. What Elphaz says in, in summary is true. Who can stand before God? Who can stand righteous before God? The answer to that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he stand condemned before God for my sake so that I could stand before God clear? We don't have a chance standing before God on our own righteousness. But Jesus stands in our place. He's the one that we trust in. He's the one that we worship in. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that you give us wisdom in our own lives as we consider your truth. We pray that we will commit our way to you. We pray that we will go through our interactions with others in wise ways, knowing, Lord, that you know the truth and you'll confront that truth. You'll, you'll confront that individual if they fail to listen to your warnings here. They'll face you without anything for support. And then, Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who suffered 
for us. We pray, Lord, that you would guide hearts to fully trust in him, to commit ourselves to him. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.